0: Well, thank you, worship team, uh, for leading us in that. Um, I pray that that was your uh, heart's desire as we sang that song to build our lives, your life, uh, on who Christ is and all that he has done for us. So thank you, uh, worship team. Why don't we open up uh, with a word of prayer before we dive into the word of God today. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. Uh, for community. Lord, uh, we recognize that we were made for this, to be with one another, to be together, to celebrate, to honor who you are and what you have done in our lives. God, this morning as we come into your presence in this place, uh, Lord, would you use this time together to encourage us, uh, to help us think more deeply uh, about what it is that you are calling us to do specifically and us to do as a congregation. Uh, Lord, I just pray uh, that you would use me this morning. May uh, the words I say uh, just be from you, God, uh, your heart to your people. Uh, Lord, we set aside this time. Uh, I pray against distraction or any of the things that would uh, prevent us uh, from meeting you here this morning, Lord. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So some of you may have seen on the screen this morning, we are still continuing our series in Philippians chapter 3. Uh, you may have seen that little... Uh that little sermon title, "A New Citizenship," and so we're going to be unpacking that a little bit. So if you want to, if you want to pull that uh, in your Bible or your app, you can just turn to Philippians chapter three, and we'll we'll be there this morning. But before we get to that, I was thinking uh, about this idea of citizenship, and I don't know if you thought about this because I was born here, so I didn't have to go through the process. But if you've immigrated here, uh, give yourself a pat on the back because I went through just the how to go from start to finish, and it is. It is awful. Um, <laughs> I was reading through some of the the process, and uh, it's, it's, it might have been easy for you, but uh, just going through all the things you have to do. Uh, you have to know things like parts of Canada's history and, and little things that are involved in that, uh, what we've been through. You have to show some proficiency in the language. Uh, and after writing a test, uh, you still have to wait approval to see if you've passed. And then if you pass... You go to this citizenship ceremony uh, where you'll stand and take the oath of citizenship. And you can read what that is, uh, easy to find online. Uh, But you make this oath, you say it, and then after that they say you are now a Canadian citizen and it's quite a process uh, it's not an easy one it's it takes time and effort and a lot of energy and truth be told you can actually go online and take a practice test uh and i did this and i'm so glad i was born here uh because i did not pass that test um and i love history but some of those questions like who would know this um thankfully you guys have to study for it but i was like wow um and it's like i said a process and uh once you go through it, you come out on the other side, there's a pride, there's a joy, like, I've made it. I'm a Canadian citizen or a U.S. citizen or whatever country uh, you find yourself in. And uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, when he uh, immigrated to the U.S., after he did all that process, he says, as long as I live, I'll never forget that day. 21 years ago, this was written a while ago, it's probably way further beyond than that. But at the time, he said, 21 years ago, when I raised my hand and took the oath of citizenship, do you know how proud I was? I was so proud that I walked around with an American flag around my shoulders all day long. He was so excited about having now been called a citizen of the United States. And the Roman colony of Philippi carried with it a same sense of pride. Uh, It wasn't necessarily an over, you know, sort of arrogant type thing, but there was a pride. We are a Roman colony. Uh, We have this this amazing heritage. Uh, There was a pride uh, being part of the Roman uh, colony around with them. It was a privilege for them to be part of Rome. You experienced the benefits of support, the currency, the economy, uh, safety, protection, and justice afforded to bona fide citizens of Rome. As part of their process, they had to give fealty to Rome uh, and hail Caesar as Lord and Savior. Uh, this was kind of the the line you had to toe as people who were part of the colony. Caesar is Lord. Uh, and this is, this is the, the tension that the Philippian church walked in and lived in uh, in a day-to-day basis. Because you have here on the one side, Paul starting this church many years ago, now writing them a letter to encourage them. But this is the context they find themselves in. How do we follow Christ as Lord and Savior when we've also got this on the side as Caesar, as Lord and Savior? And so-called savior how do we walk in these tensions who do we follow and what does that look like last time i was up here i taught for like three hours uh, about <laughs> about uh, uh the earlier portion uh of of this section in chapter three where, where paul calls out the dogs and he talks about how these people are coming along and telling the the local Christian church in Philippi and others, that in order to be a legitimate Christian, you have to go through a circumcision and then you get the stamp of approval. You belong. And Paul's argument is that is absolutely untrue. It is rubbish. All you need at the end of the day is faith in Christ and Christ alone. And he goes through all of his accomplishments or so called accomplishments and says, All of those things I count as loss. They pale in comparison to the, the, the life that Christ has paved the way for. The real prize, he says later on, is the one I get after running my race. I run this race with perseverance. I'm pressing on, he says, with every effort straining toward that goal for the prize of that upward call in Christ Jesus. That prize meant everything to Paul. You see it. It saturated his day-to-day life. Whether he was doing missions work or sharing the gospel or starting churches or traveling with his companions, everything that he did was about the kingdom of God. It was his lifelong mission to know Christ beyond just his name. Yeah, I know Jesus. That's a, we have some sort of relationship. But Paul's like, I want to know him beyond just that surface relationship. He goes so far as to say, I want to know the power of his resurrection, to know and experience his suffering in fact to become like him as he goes on to say to become like him in his death which bill talked about not that long ago that was where his joy was placed not in his achievements but in his daily pursuit of running to become more like christ as powerful as Uh, as that argument, as he finishes that amazing argument, he carries on to some very practical things. Uh, What does it mean to run that race? How does one go about doing it? What does that even look like? And so Paul, as he moves along, he carries on into these practical things. And first, before he gets to anything deeper than that, he exhorts the Philippian church in verse 17, where we'll pick up and we'll carry on from there. But we have it on the screen. He says in verse 17, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Paul is saying, You want to learn how to do all of these things I'm talking about. You don't need the circumcision thing. That's not what guarantees you salvation. It's faith in this pursuit and this striving and running towards that goal, that upward call, as he talks about. You want to know how to do that? Look at how I'm doing it. Pay attention to the way I'm doing things, how I'm talking, how I'm walking. The way I'm sharing the gospel with others, the way I've brought others along with me, uh, and these things—he's saying, "Look at how my ministry is going, and imitate that." Doesn't have to be a perfect, you know, carbon copy of that, but he's saying, "Look at what I'm doing, and find a way to imitate me in this journey." We all need an example. We all need a role model. When someone comes along and explains something quite complex, I think of sports. When you have coaches, uh, teams need a coach to say, here's the play. Here's how you run it. Here's what the outcome of that play is if you do this right. You need a coach to explain those things. Athletes need trainers. Yeah, you can put on the shoes, you can put on the attire, but you need to know how to run properly or you're going to hurt your body. There are proper ways of doing things, and trainers come along and say, your stride is a little off. Let's fix the way you take your steps. Let's fix the way your arms swing. They come along and help perfect that run. Paul says, you want to learn how to run this race, watch how I'm doing it. Look at the steps I'm taking and imitate me. He's inviting them to get up, put their gear on, and actively participate in that pursuit together. There was an author uh, by the name of H. Page Williams... And he, in his book, he was writing about marriage and a whole bunch of other things. But within this conversation, he pulls the son uh, of this family side, and he asks uh, this little boy what his father did for a living. And he's trying to know what the occupation is. And the boy replied, he watches. Uh, and he goes on to say, I asked, uh, you mean, like, is he a night watchman? Oh, no, the little boy exclaimed. Uh, he just watches. Okay, well, what does he watch? I asked. I don't know if I can tell you everything, he continued, but I can name a few things. Well, tell me, he replied. Well, he watches TV, he watches mom do the housework, he watches for the paperboy, he watches the weather, he watches the stock market, he watches football games, all the sports, he watches mother spank us, and he watches us do our homework. He watches us leave to go to church and parent-teacher meetings and shopping. He watches my brother mow the lawn and he watches me rake. He watches my sister clean up the dirty dishes and he watches me wash the dog. He watches mom write letters and he watches me play with the dog. He watches mom pay the bills. He watches me a lot. But mainly he just watches, said the little fellow with a note of sadness. There's no participation. It's just observation, and Paul is saying, you can't just watch. And this is Paul's heart for all of his, if you go through all of his letters, whether it's Philippi or Colossians or any of the others, there's always this call and an active exhortation to get up and join in the movement of where Christ is calling his people to step into, to journey into, to walk, to talk, all of these things. Paul is saying we need to move. We can't just sit, and you're sitting right now, so don't leave. But (laughs) there is this idea that the church was not made for sitting. We weren't designed to sit here. This is an awesome opportunity, and Paul takes advantage of it too as he starts the church, to teach, to preach, and proclaim the name of Christ. We need to sit at the feet of those teachings, but after hearing those teachings, there is a getting up and a going out. And Paul is saying, this is what we all participate. Paul is not looking for his beloved Philippian church that he poured his heart and soul into all those years ago to start, just for them to stand on the sidelines and cheer on his race. Yay, Paul, you're doing a great job. We support you. Here's some money. We're praying for you. Paul's like, join me. Get on the track. Follow me in this race. Get out here and run. Don't just stand there watching. There are many people in this world uh, who are wearing the gear. Uh, they go out and they buy the proper shoes. They buy the attire, the shirts, the shorts, everything to look the part. They put it all on and they go and sit on the couch. Couch potato athletes is what we call them. There's an attempt. I'm going to put in a, If I just have the right shoes, the right gear, maybe that will motivate me to hit the gym or, or go out for a run. If I just have the right attire, I'll do these things. They get all of those things, but it's only an imitation unless you put it to use. You look like a runner. Do you run? No, I just look the part. Paul is saying, don't just look the part. Get out and run. You need to run this race. Paul isn't looking for cheap imitators who look the part but aren't running. He's looking for imitators who can run with him, who can join him in the race, who hear his encouragement. Keep going. You got this. You can keep doing this. You're almost there. There is an end in sight, believe it or not. Paul even throughout his whole ministry said, Christ is coming soon. It's 2,000 years later. We're still saying Christ is coming soon. We We know not the time or when, but Paul says, run. Run your race. You don't know. Get out and run. You can do this. Because none of us ever arrive. You can be a Christian for 50 years and still know less than someone who's been a Christian for one. Paul is saying you never arrive in this life of following Jesus, we must strive. There is an effort, an intensity. It takes work and energy, yes. But the end result is an amazing prize. It is worth all the effort. We run, but with the proper clothing, the proper attire. Paul tells the Roman church uh, in chapter 13, verse 14, he tells them that same thing, that we are to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a fancy shirt shirt. It's not the brand that you're wearing. It's not the type of shoes you've got. Paul's saying, we put on Christ. That is your gear. And you run. And make no provision for the flesh is what he goes on to say to gratify those desires. Why? Put on Christ. Make no provision for those things. Because he goes on to say further down in chapter 3 that there are two camps in this this context that he's going to get to. In verse 18, he says this, For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you, even with tears, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. These enemies are those who certainly put on all the gear. They look the part they're wearing. Maybe they're going to church. Maybe they were part of the congregation and aren't now, or they're part of the congregation, but there's, there's something off. And Paul is calling this out and saying, you are imitators. You are enemies of the cross with your lifestyle. And he gives four really strong indicators for why they look the part but aren't running their race. They are really what he calls, and it's strong language, enemies of the cross. That is strong language. It's significant, though, when you hear that strong language, that it doesn't come from a place of Paul saying, Oh, these enemies, these dirty, awful people can't, can't experience God's grace and the sanctification and the process of holiness. These awful, dirty people. Paul says these things with difficulty. If you read the context, it says, I tell you now with even tears. This brings Paul no joy to call him this. It fills him with immense sorrow. These are people who were perhaps there at the beginning when he started the church, who built relationships. He loved on them, supported them. They did the same with him. And now he watches them walking the way that they are walking. It's not an easy thing. And pastors, we experience this. When we watch people who at one point look like they had such a vibrant faith and just suddenly something hits and no longer. And they just say, I want nothing to do with this anymore. It's very common and we see it across our culture all all the time. You hear this word deconstruction. I'm deconstructing my faith. And they deconstruct it down to the final thing. They say, what I'm left with is, I don't know, but I'm not going back. I give up. I throw my hands up. And they give up everything. It's significant that Paul says these things with tears. They may be called enemies, but he loved them. And now he hears their way of living, which is contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He cares deeply, and it's painful to watch them, knowing that apart from Christ, their path leads to destruction. For the wages of sin is death. It's a warning, because they are paying too high a price for Paul not to talk about it, nor care. He's talking to the Philippian church as a whole and says, these are the people that are walking as enemies of the cross. It's a warning to them and us. Whom Paul is writing to ask the question, what is waiting for me at the end? Where is all of this headed? How is my walk? So that's their first indicator. Their end is destruction. The second thing he goes on to say is, their end, well, their their end is destruction, but how does the how does that work out? How do they get to that end? Well, because they have pledged fealty not to the God who created them and made them for so much more, but they've chosen to pledge themselves to the God of their belly. With all of its alluring temptation, sensuality, its lust, its greed, its idolatry, the heart is deceitful above all things, <laughs> we read. But Paul writes to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 11, and says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Sounds pretty bad. The, the, the confidence, Paul says further on, is, but that's what some of you were. That was what you were like before meeting Christ. And then Christ comes in, transforms you, and now you are being sanctified. You're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. This is what you used to be like. All of that, you're being sanctified in this process as Christ is transforming you. Paul is indicating here that these enemies of the cross were not washed. They're not being sanctified, nor are they justified. They have chosen to embrace living for self and for pleasure wherever it can be had. It is the God of their belly, and they follow it faithfully, unknowingly, of course, on a course to a destructive end. Hard things for Paul to be talking about people whom he cared for. And then the third thing he goes on to say is the worst part is that beyond all of this, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, but they embrace a lifestyle that's contrary to the gospel and they glory in it. They know. Paul started this church. He gave them everything they needed to understand what it meant to follow Christ, how to follow Christ. All of these things starts this church. They know the truth. And they chose to say, we want want these things. These things are too alluring to give up for Christ. What is considered shameful is a place of pride and joy for them. Because you see, as I mentioned earlier, when we come to know Christ, we recognize our need for salvation. We come face to face with the reality that without a Savior, we are in desperate need of a saving grace. And unless we have that Savior, we are stuck And Paul says, when you come face to face with that reality and recognize that salvation is only a conversation with God away, there's a confessing of your sin and believing and a giving of our lives to Christ as we are being led by the Spirit. We are being invited into the process of sanctification where we are becoming more and more like Jesus as we further our walk down the road with Him. Daily, in the process, we are made more aware of, of our flaws. It's, it's a sort of a catch-22. God, I want to follow you more. And he reveals to you all of the things in your life, your flaws, the reasons that make it difficult for you to perhaps follow him faithfully. And he invites us to let these things go, to shape us, to shift us, to get us through these things. Despite those flaws and difficulties, he's moving us into that process of sanctification. And followers of Jesus want that process. We strive after it. Paul strove after it. Sins that we used to be comfortable with, places we used to go to, or people we used to hang out with and talk about certain things, no longer feel good. They bring a sense of shame or guilt or, or any of those emotions. And there's, there's a gracious convicting experience that the spirit gives to us and says this is not a place you should be walking in that's not something you should be looking at this isn't how you should be talking and they're not from a place where the spirit is saying you are just not good enough and i'm just here to make you better he says it in a loving compassionate gentle way get up we can run this race together but we need to shake these things off i love you but these things can't stay that is the place from which conviction comes many people hear the word conviction it's like oh it feels awful it's it's a terrible experience, but it doesn't come from a God who's judging us. It's coming from a God who graciously loves us and doesn't want us to stay in those habits or patterns of sin. He's leading us out of those things, and conviction brings us through that process. All of those things that we counted as game, maybe like Paul, the success, the things we had, money, status, whatever those things are, Christians who come to know Christ say, that, that is not worth anything. We experience that. These gentle nudges are a reminder to get get back on track. It is grace upon grace upon grace in the confessing and restoration. But those whom Paul sheds tears for, he is shedding tears for them who may have at one point made some profession of faith, had a lifestyle that looked like it was walking in that way, Maybe they were, if they hadn't even professed, maybe they were at least part of the congregation. They seemed like maybe they were were on the cusp of coming to follow Christ. And they heard Paul talk about it. They heard who Jesus was, the reason why he came, the reason why he lived and died and rose again, and yet still chose to carry on, unmoved, unchanged by that gospel. It was and is good news. But not good enough for them to let go of their habits, their lifestyles, the things that they clung to. I can't let that go. Take up your cross and follow me. I can't. I love this too much. They couldn't do it. And they chase after the God of their belly and they glory in it. All of this because they have a mindset only on the things of this earth. They have such a tunnel vision focus of what is only around them that they miss out on the supernatural experience that God has invited them and all of us into. I need that job. I need that money. I need that car. I need my next fix. I need that grade. And on and on and on and on and on. It never ends. It goes on and on. You get that job, you want a better job. You get that job, you want a better raise. There's no end in sight to the things that our hearts and and lives desire and crave and strive after. It goes on and never ends. I need, I need, I need. And it becomes the driving force of their lives when at the end of it all, what we all really need. Everyone is the life-changing transformative power of Jesus Christ, who himself taught to not chase after the things of this earth, where moth and rust destroy, where everything fades. There is nothing in this world built to last. We weren't made to serve and strive after all of these things, They won't bring hope. They don't bring lasting joy or satisfaction. We weren't made for this. We were created to know our Creator, to experience His grace, His truth, and love, to find our deepest joy in who He is, not in what we've accomplished or what we have, but in who He is. These enemies of the cross, their hearts weren't set on Jesus, not fixed on Him at all. Their hearts were set on the things of this earth. And it's a costly pursuit. Paul says it leads to destruction. What feels like a blessing in the moment of pleasure and simple satisfaction is a cursed eternity for these people. The enemy is a cunning tempter, and many have fallen prey to his alluring offers. Make no mistake, he's not after you to make you feel good. The enemy doesn't come along and say, I have all these things that are just going to make you happy and feel good. These are an illusion to the underlying reasons he has for bringing those to your attention. Thomas Watson writes this, The devil is angling for the precious soul. To undo souls is his pride. He glories in the damnation of souls. It is next to victory to die revenged. If Samson must die, it is some comfort that he shall make more die with him. If Satan, that lion, must be kept in his hellish den, it is all the heaven he expects to reach forth his paw and pull others into the den with him. These are the enemies of the cross, snatched, taken away, because they were tempted and allured by all the things this world had to offer and bought it, and it cost them a high price. Their end is destruction, Paul says and it is so too with many of us today as it was back then. What are we striving after? Where is our mindset? Are we striving after earthly things or the things of heaven? For the Philippian church and for us, it's a sobering reminder to ask ourselves, where do my allegiances lie? I talked about this earlier. When you're taking a you pledge an oath of allegiance to the country. There's expectations of you as citizens of that country. These are the things you're expected to do. You ought to do. And you take an oath for it. For them, in Philippi, it was to pledge allegiance to the counterfeit savior, Caesar. For others, it was just simply to self. I'm my own God. I make my own destiny. I do me, you do you. It doesn't matter as long as I get what I want and I'm happy. But where are our hearts? Where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. However, all that sobering reminder Very hard to hear for the Philippian church, I'm sure. I couldn't imagine if I heard that and I was like, yeah, I had that friend and that's where he's at right now. And Paul's telling me that my friend is now an enemy of the cross. That's a hard thing to hear as a member of that congregation. But Paul goes on to say, for those who have professed faith and are pursuing a life of following Jesus, he goes on further to give them and us an extraordinarily encouraging reminder. He goes on to write in verse 20 and 21. But you, our citizenship, us, them, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This is an amazing truth that we have as followers of Jesus. What of this citizenship? Remember, Paul is talking to a Roman colony They took pride in their citizenship as Roman citizens. They prided themselves on their status, the privilege. And they looked to Rome to take care of them, to provide for them, to protect them, and more. Hail Lord Caesar! There are two things that Paul exhorts them to remember in this passage. Their citizenship is not tied to an earthly postal code or an address. It's tied to the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead conquered what no one else could conquer. Even Caesar, in all of his, his capacity to take over much of the world at that time, planting colonies here, taking over here, going out and on, he still could not conquer the one thing that every human being has to overcome, sin and death. Caesar, with all he had, could not overcome those things. Christ comes along, rises from the dead, and conquers what no one else was able to conquer. Not Rome with its army, and not Satan with his army, Not Caesar with his false godlike status. Christ overcomes sin and death. He is the great overcomer. That is the first truth that Paul is reminding them. Christ is our conquering Savior. Yeah, Caesar probably did some great things, a lot of bad things too. But he pales, not even comes close. It's not not even close compared to who Christ is and what Christ accomplished. We celebrated this only two weeks ago, right? Easter. Christ is risen. And we come together and we celebrate that amazing moment where we all reflect on Christ's rising, coming out of the tomb, and celebrating the life that he now invites us into because of the resurrection. All who by faith, because of this resurrection, come to believe in and follow Jesus. And they are granted instant status as citizens of the kingdom of God a much less grueling process than becoming a Canadian citizen. There's no test. There's no proficiency. There's no process. Just a humble recognition of our need for that gift of grace that at our worst, in his great love for us, he pays the highest price and redeems us from sin and death. And we confess with our mouths as Romans Romans 10 talks about. When you confess with your mouth and believe in your hearts that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he was risen from the dead, you will be saved. That's all it takes to be a citizen of heaven. We are new citizens of heaven because of that resurrection. So we first have a conquering savior who paves this way for us. New status, new life, new postal code. It's amazing that privilege. But secondly, what he offers goes beyond what anything here on earth can provide. Where is the great Rome of old? It still stands, but it's not the same. Where are those great, mighty leaders? What of the philosophers, the great cities that have come and gone, lost to time? The mighty have fallen. Many mighty have fallen over the course of human history. Leaders fail, people fail, things fail. Everything comes and goes. Everything, but not Christ, nor his kingdom. And as citizens of that kingdom, we too shall last. We don't last here. Earth fades, things fade. Even our lives, at the end of it all, fade. But it's why Paul can write with such excitement and enthusiasm that these lowly earthly bodies will be transformed to be like christ's even as we fade we are made new things of this earth fade moth rust all that stuff fall apart but not us followers of jesus it is a glorious and eternal promise that we are given and it's an amazing privilege being a citizen of the kingdom of heaven The tricky thing we are called to navigate in these days is reality that we are called to navigate this seemingly far-off transformative experience. But it is not something we sit back and wait for until Christ returns. Christ is coming soon, so I'll just sit and wait. No. The hour is near. Jesus writes about this. (laughs) The thief comes quickly, and so it will be with Christ. He will come quickly in the flash and the twinkling of an eye all of these things, at any moment he can come back, what are we doing with our lives? We are called to be running, persevering, and part of that running is that for Paul, we too are inviting others to join us in that race. N.T. Wright describes this quite well uh, in in the context of this passage. He goes on to say, if someone from Philippi said, we are citizens of Rome, they certainly wouldn't mean, so we are looking forward to going to live there. We are citizens of Rome. We are looking forward to live there. But being a colony works the other way around. The last thing emperors wanted at that time was a whole lot of colonists coming to the city of Rome. The capital was already overcrowded. It was underemployed. Don't come here. There's no room for you. The last thing they wanted was that. No, the task of the Roman citizen in a place like Philippi was to bring Roman culture and influence to that part of the world where they were. And in a similar way, it is the same with us and the church. We are not simply called to sit back and watch the sky until Christ returns. As Philippi was a colony of Rome, wherever the church is, that is where we find a colony of heaven. We run together for the kingdom as citizens of heaven here on earth. We live here, but this is not our final home. We are passing through sojourners, as it were. This is why Paul exhorts them to imitate him, to see his strides, to watch his movements, to hear his heart, and to do as he does. His passion is to know Christ more. His passion to share the gospel. His passion to run his race all in pursuit of Christ. And that amazing privilege of being called sons, being called daughters. We are citizens of heaven. Let us live and walk in that truth as we become more and more like Christ. This amazing citizenship we have affords us so much more than anything else. Take all those outcomes from earlier. Their end is destruction. But the good news of Jesus Christ says, no, you are a citizen of heaven, and what seems like the end in your physical death is only the beginning of life in eternity. Their God is their belly. For citizens, our God is Jehovah Jireh. The great provider who takes care of our needs and gives us anything we can even, he wasn't, you can, beyond all that we can ask or imagine. There are some things in our lives where we're just so blown away. God, how did you come through in that? There was no way. And Jehovah Jireh comes through. They glory in their shame, but citizens of heaven glory in Christ, our Savior, our sanctifier, our healer, and coming King. They have their minds set on earthly things that fade and make empty promises. Citizens of heaven have their minds set on a kingdom that never ends with a gracious, loving king who reigns over all. And we celebrate together with others who ran their own races and made it to the finish line. When we get to heaven, we all stand before the king and we worship. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. This is what we celebrate. This is what we run after. If you can catch it, if you can catch Paul's heart, it is not get on the track just to run with me. He's saying get on the track because this is an amazing pursuit. It is worth your life. It is worth every moment to strive after who Jesus is. This is why in a few short moments we come to this table as we transition to communion. At this time, may you reflect, may you think about the reality and rejoice in the truth that you are called children of God. He who bought you with a price, redeemed you and is setting you apart for good, for his good, for his will, his pleasure, which ultimately brings us good and pleasure. Citizens of the kingdom, let us come to the table.